When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the, the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he was a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Aaron, if you want to come up, we will pray for you. God, we thank you so much for Aaron. We thank you for his leadership. We thank you for his family. We thank you for the ways that he not only does eat and drink with those that Jesus was mocked for, He does it, but he also enjoys it. We thank you for his heart. We thank you for his compassion. We thank you for his love. And today, we thank you for the way he's prepared this week. God, give us um, ears to hear. Um, Just open our hearts, soften our hearts to what he has to say. Use him greatly to help fill us up and send us out in this beautiful city. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Nothing like a really long passage. I love preaching the long ones. Um, Cars Church, have you ever been so confident in something that you decided to put it all on the line? To go all in. In January 2020, back when most of us hadn't even heard the term COVID-19, my wife Caitlin and I, we met with Kevin for the very first time to discuss what it would look like for us to move to Columbia and do the CARS internship and church planning residency. As we left that lunch, we both got in the car, we looked at each other and said, I think this is what God has next for us. So we planned to move here the week after I graduated on May 1st. We knew that we wanted to live in this neighborhood, and as our good fortune would have it, some friends who were living nearby at the time connected us with their landlord, 
who had another house available just up the street. We reached out, and it sounded like they were going to be doing some renovations on the place, but uh, they told us that those would be done in early May. It was going to be perfect. We were going to live on the same street as our friends, within walking distance of our church, uh, in this nice, new, updated house. Now, I probably don't need to tell any of you that everyone who made long-term plans in January 2020 was in for a bad time. We knew that God wanted us here in Columbia, uh, but during the pandemic, it became this ongoing struggle for Caitlin to find a job here, for me to find a a part-time job to supplement the internship, and we worried that we might lose the opportunity to rent this house. We stayed in contact with the landlords over the summer and let them know that we were being delayed. They said, that's okay. The pandemic has also delayed the construction process and the, the renovation process. So we thought, this is great, you know, it's still going to work out just fine. Eventually, Caitlin lands this job, uh, and the start date is the end of August. I reach out to the landlords, let them know, and they say, great, we're expecting the renovation to be done by the end of August. Wow, like everything's lining up perfectly. Like God must really want us in this spot. Now there's about a 10-day gap between the start of Caitlin's job and that September 1st uh, start date for our lease. So we talked to a buddy of mine here in town. He had a, a spare bedroom, a two-car garage where we could put all of our stuff. And so he said we could stay with him during that in-between week. Well, the day finally rolls around. And so I email the landlord and, and ask, you know, when can we get together to sign the lease, to pick up the keys, and get started on moving in? And I will never forget the email that I got back. There is currently no timetable for this renovation to be completed. The house is still in need of a kitchen and a bathroom. I couldn't believe it. Unlike the house, I was completely floored. And now, I'm, I'm not the guy who loses sleep when I'm stressed out. I'm more of a, you know, upset stomach kind of guy. But I read that email at 11 p.m., and for the next eight hours, I laid in bed with my eyes open, just experiencing just about every emotion that a person probably could. How was I going to tell Caitlin? She quit this job that she loved in Kansas City. Was I, how was I going to tell my buddy that we were staying with? Like, guess we're just here now? I don't, I don't know. Uh, we may need to spend some more time after all. You know, how could those landlords lead me on like that about the renovation process? Where are we supposed to live? I'm not, you know, I wasn't on the street, but like, I was thinking like, am I technically homeless right now? Like, God, it seemed like you were lining everything up perfectly so that this would work out just the way we needed it to in spite of all the chaos going on in the world right now. Were we wrong? Were we supposed to move here at all? Is this part of your plan? Uh, we're doing exactly what, you thought, what we thought you wanted us to. Why are you letting this happen? And now, I'm here this morning worshiping with you all. So spoiler alert, things did end up working out in a different way, eventually. But church, I'll ask you again. Have you ever been so confident in something that you decided to put it all on the line, to go all in? And what happens when that gamble doesn't look like it's going to pay off? When the bottom falls out and you're just adrift out there and you don't know what you're going to do next? 
Conversations about doubt and deconstruction are happening all around us right now. How do I know? Because I know you all, and I've talked to you all, and you've shared with me experiences from the last several years about the doubts and the difficulties that you all have gone through. Because I've seen some of my own good friends and family members go through the process of faith deconstruction. Because I've been through my own personal seasons of doubt and deconstruction. But just because these conversations are kind of at the fore for a lot of people right now, it doesn't make them new conversations. God's people have always been asking difficult questions. They've always been experiencing pain and struggle. They've always been called to re-engage what they believe and reevaluate it in light of Scripture. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in our passage in Matthew. As Jesus closes out that large block of teaching that is Matthew 10, we see Jesus encounter the crowds and the disciples of John the Baptist. They bring John's question of doubt to Jesus and give him an opportunity to answer the question that many of us have probably had. Jesus, are you really the one? Or should I keep looking for someone, something else? This morning, we're going to kind of Tarantino this passage. That is, we're going to set the stage and then move from the end back to the beginning. Our larger passage, it has three big chunks to it. And I want us to ask four questions as we move through the passage. Number one, why do we doubt? Two, what kind of people doubt? Three, how do we doubt well? And four, how does Jesus respond to our doubt? Before we begin, we should also probably uh, define some terms, because too often we find ourselves using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. What are we actually trying to communicate when we talk about deconstruction and doubt and things like that? Let's talk about deconstruction first, since that term uh, is kind of specifically having a, a cultural moment right now. When we think about deconstruction, there's actually a couple of ways that we can understand it. I'm going to paraphrase here from a couple of scholars, Michael Kruger and Sean McDowell. On the negative side, there's what we'll call kind of a, a critical or total deconstruction. This kind of critical deconstruction is essentially the same as deconversion and ends up undermining or denying core doctrines of historical and biblical Christianity. Even if that person would continue to insist on calling themselves a Christian, effectively, they've left the faith. Anything related to biblical, historic, or evangelical Christian teaching is kind of inherently assumed to be toxic and that it should be discarded. Can I just be real and like name some names for us? When I look at like Apple's most popular religion podcast, that's going to be shows like Peden's The Bible for Normal People or The Liturgist Podcast. But not all deconstruction has to take that form, and not all deconstruction is inherently negative, in fact. There's also this kind of reforming deconstruction where you examine the faith you've inherited, breaking down parts that are secondary or culturally based or non-essential or untrue, you analyze, disassemble, then reconstruct a faith that is more deeply rooted in the person of Jesus expressed in Scripture. This kind of deconstruction acknowledges that there is still real serious issues that the church needs to address. This is kind of what is meant by the phrase, a church reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. 
This is the kind of deconstruction that I would actually encourage you to, uh, to do if you've inherited some kind of uh, postmodern Christianity or pseudo-Christianity or Christian nationalism. Tear that down, but then let's rebuild into something that's more Christ-like and biblical. What about the term doubt then? Simply put, doubt is a lack of confidence, clarity, conviction, or certainty. This would be opposed to another term, disbelief, meaning refusal or inability to hold something as true or real, an absence of faith. You might also hear disbelief used interchangeably with the term unbelief. They're very close. So, now that we've clarified these ideas, what do we see John the Baptist experiencing? Let's dive into our passage, verses 2 and 3. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is experiencing the persecution that Jesus had spent all of Matthew 10 promising. He's been imprisoned by King Herod for calling out his adulterous relationship. He gets wind of Jesus' ministry, and things just aren't quite adding up for him. And with that as our backdrop, let's begin answering those three questions, those four questions this passage raises for us about doubt and deconstruction. Let's start at the end and work our way back. Take a look at verses 16 through 19. Help us see why we doubt. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Can I remind you, our experience of doubt today are not new. Our doubts aren't the result of living in a postmodern scientific age. Jesus asks here, what can I compare this generation, my generation, these Jewish people living in the first century Roman Empire to? Set against the backdrop of John's persecution, Jesus shares some of our sources of doubt, and that being our circumstances and our expectations. Circumstances and expectations. For starters, it's the current circumstances of John's own life that set up, that set the stage for this whole passage. He's in prison, suffering after standing up for what is right, trying to hold his leaders to account. When the circumstances of life are at their darkest and most difficult, when things go vastly different from the way that we expected God or the world to work, doubt, that lack of conviction or clarity, is a natural response. Now, maybe you've never been imprisoned for criticizing the king, but what about in other areas of your life? Maybe you are or have been like me that night that I found out that rental property fell through. God, I put it all on the line for you. You were supposed to hold up your end of the deal. Now I don't even have a home for my family. Maybe for you it's another specific scenario, but it always boils down to that core thought. God, my circumstances aren't living up to my expectations. How do I know that I can rely on you? Maybe it's health-related. Maybe you work in healthcare, but your story is marked by illness. Maybe it's school or work-related. You play by the rules, try your hardest, but you always get passed over for recognition. Or things have gone awry in your family relationships. Even though you're pretty sure you've done everything that you're supposed to do. 
when Caitlin and I do premarital counseling for engaged couples, we try to devote an entire session to um, addressing the expectations that people bring into their marriage. And these often unconscious expectations are shaped by the worlds that we grew up in, our family of origin. But it's important to unearth those expectations because we can think that the person we're about to marry ought to always do things in a certain way only to learn that, well, that's just how my family did things growing up. And so when they fail to meet our expectations, even though we didn't know they existed, it can create a lot of relational tension, doubt. Who is this person that I married? Are we meant to be together? Are we really right for each other? And it's not totally different from the way that we think about our relationship with God. We grow up in this hyper-competitive culture that, at least on its surface, uh, claims to be a, a meritocracy. So we're enculturated to expect that in all areas of our life. If we take care of business on our end, we'll get that promotion. We'll get that raise, that good grade, that romantic partner. But we see throughout Scripture that God often does what is counterintuitive to our culture. A crucified Messiah? No way. So, when God fails to meet the expectations that we had for him, even though he didn't set those expectations for us, we become like the children in the marketplace. God, I play the flute. Why aren't you dancing? God, I'm singing the funeral song, but you're not mourning. When our expectations go unmet, we can often fall into a season of doubt. But there's another reason that we fall into doubt and disbelief or begin to deconstruct our faith. And most people probably don't want to hear this, but underlying unrepentant sin can often lead us down that path. Look at verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus speaks both uh, about he and John's ministry here. Maybe you remember a long time ago when we were in Matthew chapter 3. and We read about John and his preaching and baptizing ministry. He's a wild character whose wardrobe consists of camel hair robes, and his weekly meal prep is simple. Nothing more than grasshoppers and honey. But what was John's central message in Matthew 3? He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Compare that to Jesus. His first miracle is turning water into wine at a wedding reception. Then in Matthew 9, the religious leaders criticize Jesus and his disciples. How dare you eat with those disgusting tax collectors and those filthy sinners? But what is Jesus' central message? It's actually not different from John's. In Matthew 4, we read, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message. Jesus points out, the hidden sin and the hypocrisy of those who doubt and disbelieve he and John. They say that they reject John because he's this grade-A weirdo who lives in the desert with strange clothes and a gross diet. But then when Jesus comes along preaching the exact same message in the opposite way, they reject him too because he eats and drinks too much and spends time with the wrong people. Uh-uh. The doubters and disbelievers 
They reject Jesus and John and fail to take part in the kingdom because they reject that command to repent from their sins. It's not about the method. It's about the message. Now, don't hear me the wrong way. What I'm not saying is that all doubt and faith deconstructions is related to uh, some kind of latent sin in our hearts. That's not the reason for John's doubts here in our passage. As I already said, our doubts are often related to circumstances of life that are beyond our control or uh, unmet expectations that we may have passively inherited. But we'd also be kidding ourselves to say that sin doesn't or can't play a role here too. Because that is what sin does by nature. It blinds us to the truth of the gospel. We get addicted to our sin, and then we refuse to turn away from it. If we're being truly honest, oftentimes our circumstances, our expectations, and our sins become intertwined. They exacerbate one another. And that traps us in these seasons or cycles of doubt. We'll discuss here in just a bit uh, how we can doubt well in those seasons. But let's keep moving through our passage this morning. Our doubts are often caused by circumstances, shattered expectations, and sin. But what about our other questions? What kind of person or people are susceptible to doubt? To put it bluntly, all of us. There's no one kind of person, one kind of Christian, one kind of church tradition that is more prone or less prone to doubt. And I don't say that to scare you. I, I, you know, don't think that I'm telling you to be you know, looking out for the boogeyman of doubt and deconstruction every time your life gets difficult. But let's look at the middle section of our passage, and I'll show you what I mean. Let's read that big chunk, verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So here in this middle section of our passage, Jesus takes this extended moment to reestablish the identity of John in front of his disciples and the crowds. I want us to see here that if John the Baptist can experience doubt, then any of us can experience doubt. There's two ways we can think about who John is and the significance of his doubts. Because John has a, a biblical theological identity on top of his own personal identity. And Jesus really hammers home his biblical theological identity. So let's start by looking at that. Jesus asks, you know, back when John was baptizing in the Jordan River, why did you go out to see him? Did you go out to see a, a reed shaken by the wind? That is, someone who's weak and flimsy, easily swayed by the world around him? No, of course not. Did you go out to see a guy dressed in nice, fancy clothes? No, 
Right now, John's got nothing but the itchy camel hair shirt on his back, and he's being held hostage by the guy who wears nice, fancy clothes. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? That's putting it lightly. Jesus opens up his Bible for the people. Y'all remember when Isaiah 40 said that someone would be coming to pave the way for the Messiah? You know, back in Malachi chapter 4, God said he'd send Elijah back to his people? That's John. You didn't just go out to see a prophet. You went out to see the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He says, actually, of all the people who've ever been born of women, that's everyone, John is the goat, the greatest of all time. Greater than Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, all of them. And yet, for those who are members in God's kingdom, you're even greater than John. On a biblical theological level, John is the forerunner to the Messiah. In football terms, he's the lead blocker, a fullback or a pulling guard, uh, making sure that the Messiah has room to get down the field. But who is John on a personal level? Before John was born, his parents were told that he would be the Isaiah 40 forerunner, the Malachi 4 man. John must have known all of that. You'd think his parents would let him know. He must have looked forward to fulfilling the calling that God had put on his life. We also know that from the first chapters in Luke that Jesus and John are relatives. When Jesus and John's mothers are pregnant, they spend time together. Surely they talked about what the angel angel has said to them, uh, who their sons would grow up to be. Though they grew up in different regions of Palestine, Jesus' family made pilgrimages down to Jerusalem. And I kind of have a hard time believing that Mary and Elizabeth never got the cousins together. So John the Baptist has both a personal and a prophetic relationship to Jesus. Don't miss this either. This is why doubt and deconstruction can be so disorienting for us when we experience them. You'd think that, especially in light of his own preaching ministry, that this would be the last person who would doubt who Jesus is. In all the gospel accounts, John baptizes Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends visibly onto Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son, who I love. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to doubt anything after I saw that, you know? Uh, Yet John is the man who we read about this morning who doubts if Jesus is the Messiah. John, says, John sends his disciples to ask if Jesus is the Messiah. If John the Baptist can experience doubt, any of us can experience doubt. But this question isn't just about Jesus' identity. It's about John's identity too. Because if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then who the heck is John? If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then is John really the forerunner? And if John isn't the forerunner, why did he waste his life in the wilderness, eating bugs and wearing scratchy clothes? Why is he now rotting away in a prison cell? For John, his whole life is literally riding on the answer to this question. And we can experience something similar. We talk all the time, for good reason, that Christians have their identity rooted and secure 
in Jesus. That's where we find our ultimate identity. That also means, though, when we experience seasons of doubt, that we're going to experience chaos within our own selves as well. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then who are we and what are we even doing here? This is why doubts are never just theological problems that have to be solved on an intellectual level. That's part of it, but it's usually more than that. So if none of us are impervious to doubt, how do we doubt well? And how does Jesus respond to doubt? These are perhaps the two most important questions that we have this morning. How do we doubt well? I think we should look at John as a positive example. Let's read verse 2 again, because it's where we'll find the most important things here. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Okay, what do we see here? I like what Jeff Metters points out from this passage. Number one, John doubts in the context of community. And number two, John takes his doubts to Jesus. John doubts in the context of community, and John takes his doubts directly to Jesus. John doubts in the context of his community. John sends his disciples to ask Jesus the question. Just because he's in prison, he hasn't given up his mission yet. He hasn't disbanded his spiritual community, his followers. It's insanely tempting for us when we're experiencing doubt, we're going through deconstruction, to step away from or outside of the church community. We think that we can handle our circumstances, our sin, our shattered expectations on our own. We think that dealing with <clears throat> doubts has to be some kind of solo mission. We say to ourselves, what would everyone say if I let them know I wasn't 100% sure about all this? On the flip side, Karis, this means that we absolutely have to be a family of faith that can walk with people through seasons of doubt. In his recent book on deconstruction, Sean McDowell writes, people don't leave the church because of unanswered questions. They leave the church because they have unasked questions. Questions that they know that if they ask them, they'll be ostracized, looked down on. How could you even think about asking that question? Church, if people can't bring their doubts in here with them, then people will just leave here with them and not come back. The short book of Jude was written by Jesus' own brother, who initially doubted that his brother was the Messiah. And in verse 22, he says simply this, have mercy on those who doubt. Church, if you're not currently in a season of doubt, then that's your application point this morning. Have mercy on those who are doubting. Second way that John shows us how to doubt. He takes his doubts to Jesus. If it's natural for us to distance ourselves from the church community while we're doubting, how much easier is it for us to distance ourselves from the one who we are doubting? Yet John shows us how to doubt well. If we're unsure about someone or something, or something that someone has said, then that's the person that we need to clarify things with. When we doubt and deconstruct, we spend so much time in books, articles, podcasts, good resources, hopefully. But do we also spend that same time in prayer, going to Jesus, seeking Him, 
in the middle of that? Now, prayer isn't any easier when we're going through seasons of doubt. That's where we need to lean into our church community. Allow them to pray with us, alongside us, to lead us and guide us. One final question for us this morning before we finish up. How does Jesus respond to our doubt? There's two things here, and they're both amazing. In those verses in the middle of our passage, Jesus isn't just extolling John to the crowds. He's giving John his identity. John says, Jesus, who are you? If you aren't who I think you are, then who am I? But doubt does not get to define John because Jesus gets to define John. If you're here this morning and you're just scraping by, struggling through a season of doubt or a process of deconstruction, know this. Your doubt does not define you. Your king defines you. Jesus defines your identity. But what about the message that Jesus gives for the disciples to take back to John? Verses four through six. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. All right, let's go. What did I say a few weeks ago about Jesus' preaching style? Anyone remember? I said that oftentimes Jesus likes to take the book of Isaiah and stick it in a blender. And again, what what am I saying there? Uh, What do I mean by that? This response Jesus gives to John is a, you know, reference, is a selection from Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah chapter 61. This is how Jesus is proving, demonstrating to John who he is. Isaiah 61.1 is kind of the main reference. Let's look at it together on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Is there anything that sticks out to you between the prophecies and the way that Jesus quotes them? We've got all these images from Isaiah. Blind seeing, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised, good news to the poor. And that's it. Of all the Isaiah images used here, the one that's noticeably left out is the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I gotta imagine that John's disciples, they come back, see John in the, the cell, they come back with Jesus' message, it's written down on a leaf or something, like a piece of papyrus. And he's like, uh, you know, they're telling John about everything that Jesus said to them. John's like, yeah, blind see, cool. Uh, mm-hmm, lepers cleansed. And... and Anything else? And his disciples like turn the note over a couple times. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What a gut punch, right? In the middle of John's doubts, he's thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah, then I shouldn't be here. Or at least I won't be here much longer. And Jesus tells him, actually, 
I am the Messiah. See? But here's the thing. You're right where you need to be. John's in a tough spot. Because he actually needs to do some reforming deconstruction in this moment. Even at this point, John is imagining the revolutionary warrior Messiah, not the suffering servant Messiah. With his response, Jesus is telling John, hey, the expectations that you were given about the Messiah, those need to be torn down a little bit and replaced with something truer and better. Church, can I share something cool with you that I learned while I was studying this passage? John is the forerunner to the Messiah. You're like, yeah, you already said that a bunch of times. No, what I learned this week is that John is the forerunner to the Messiah in every aspect. Everything that John does or experiences, Jesus will do or experience later and in a greater way. John is miraculously born to two elderly parents. Jesus is born of a virgin. John preaches a message of repentance. Jesus preaches a message of repentance and faith, of allegiance. John is imprisoned unjustly. Jesus is arrested unjustly. John is executed by King Herod for fulfilling his prophetic calling. Jesus is executed by the Roman Empire, fulfilling his messianic calling, dying in the place of his people. What John does or experiences, Jesus will do and experience later, but in a greater way. John is the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet. He clears the way for Jesus to be born, to fulfill his ministry, to die for sins, to defeat death, and to share new creation life with us. Carus, it's that message and that ministry that's at the heart of the gospel. And it's our Savior, Jesus, who's with us, especially when we're doubting. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and we praise you this morning. We thank you for giving us your word. God, would you be with us in our doubts? Jesus, we know that this is true, that if we die with you, we live with you. And even if we're faithless, you remain faithful to us because you cannot deny yourself. Holy Spirit, would you let us feel your presence in a unique way this morning? Comfort us and encourage us when we're in the middle of life's difficulties. Also convict our hearts when we're in sin. Lord, would you be with us this morning as we continue to gather and worship around your table? Grant us a greater sense of unity, both with you and with one another. We do all things to your glory. Amen.